Welcome to Regulate Tech. This is a special boat episode for the summer that is being transmitted directly out of Chelsea Harbour. Chelsea Harbour in yes. London, yes. With me, Nicholas Berlumlod, and... With me, Richard Allen. There we go. So, uh, we should probably update people on why there's been some silence uh, as pertains to the podcast episode. So, why don't you start telling people what you've been up to? Yeah, so, so I've um, uh, had actually a bunch of family things to deal with, so I've sort of not been uh, around as much as, as uh, I would normally be. I've been traveling, traveling back and forth to see family. So, that's been me over the last few weeks. Uh, and that coincided, I think, Nicholas, with you moving house, which is why, why we're effectively in the same place now. Which yes, is, which is which is awesome in many mm. ways. So I moved to London and joined DeepMind to work on their public policy work, and uh, I'm now enjoying the the enormous masses of bureaucracy that's levied at anyone who wants to move anywhere and trying to figure out things like. How do I find a place to live, or can I possibly get a bank account, or where do I buy my food? <laughs> so it's 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 very uh, exciting, and and I am loving it because I'm learning a lot. But I'm very pleased also that we have gotten back to this, and we we agreed when we talked about this that we would do a summer episode mm. and do a little bit of a retrospective for the first six months of the year, and then also talk a little bit about summer reading because summers are for reading, and that's a law, and you can't deviate from it. Yeah. So let's start with the retrospective, and let's let's sort of try to go through this fairly um, in a systematic way. So mm. let's start with with the obvious question: What's the most overvalued tech thing that happened during the first six months? Do you think? Uh, over well, when you use that phrase, it's hard to avoid talking about crypto. <laughs> ouch! <laughs> ouch! Yes. Uh, <laughs> Where I think we're both in the sceptical camp, aren't we? I think we are. And I think yes. we said, in fact, we, our, our kind of predictions for this year, I think I may have said I, I smell a crypto meltdown coming. And, yeah. and over the first six months of this year, that's certainly become one of the big stories. Well, in fact, arguably the entire tech sector uh, is, has, is now being seen as overvalued and people are marking it down. Mm. Uh, but within that in particular that there seems to be something happening with crypto it's not it's not clear yet just how low it's going to go but some of the signs that are there suggest that a lot of really large businesses could disappear i mean they could literally be wiped out by this i don't think it's going to happen with the the big tech platforms they're suffering they're making cutbacks they're not going to disappear but in the crypto space quite a few businesses that look like their days may be numbered. Uh, that's a big story, I think. It is a really big story and it is a very interesting story because it also coincides with legislation finally uh, coming uh, to coming to the fore. And so mm. in the EU, for example, there is now legislation around things like stable coins and things like um, risk management, etc. when it comes to different new classes of assets. So I think I think there is there is um, the, the long-term prediction can be really bleak and you can say that we will remember crypto much as we remembered um what's the the sort of the small things the, the tamagotchi oh yeah tamagotchi <laughs> so yeah. the tamagotchi and crypto maybe nfts the same, the same class of phenomenon yeah, right yeah. or or you could say new form of tamagotchi nft yes there you go you can combine them <laughs> and then then you, or you could say um which is also interesting you could say well we've we've been through the the wild west phase and it was actually one of the most compressed and fast well wild west phases of any technology that we've seen and we're now into an entirely new era a phase where crypto is regulated 
related and where we might see some real applications and instead of focusing on doge coin or however you want to pronounce that yeah. uh, you might focus on blockchain and real applications on the basis of the underlying technology so you know we can go both ways on where we're heading from here what do you think uh i mean personally as i say i'm sort of more in the skeptical camp and and the, it's interesting now there's a bunch of voices sort of popping up uh and letters have been sent in from people working in the tech community particularly we should, should sort of spread out crypto it's not yeah it's cryptography and blockchain and currency or using other currency that that seems to be uh, the thing that's under pressure but the technology of cryptography and the technology of blockchain you know can be used for a million other things but it's interesting that some of the skeptical voices saying look we, we haven't yet seen really strong uses or, or or there are very few sort of good use cases for this really quite sophisticated and potentially expensive technology uh, expensive in terms of computing power and so i think i think for me the jury is out just on on it's not just on the currencies but it's some of the overselling of blockchain and solving crypto uh, problems as a as a way of uh, uh, providing solutions to a range of technological problems that yeah. I think is now yeah. up for up for the debate. Well, it's interesting because what you're saying also indicates that there might be an overvaluation of what has become known as Web three yeah. uh, point zero or. Just three, I think it is. I don't think they bother with the point zero. That's a, that's a, but it was a two point zero, and now it's a web three. I yeah, think yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. Okay, there you go. Anyway, so there's like um, there's then the question: Do you think that whole set of concept, the move from centralization to decentralization, has equally um, been overvalued? I mean, I think there's a you know again, it comes down to sort of cost of transaction. Centralization didn't just happen because people are evil and want to take control of everything, but centralization of online services happens because it's more efficient. It's more efficient to have one index of the web for us behind a search engine than for everybody to create their own indexes in indices individually. Obviously with computing power coming down in price over time, there are more opportunities to be distributed, but you still have to answer that basic question, which is, you know, if the centralized model is much more efficient in terms of energy and computing power, what's the compelling case for you to switch over and, yeah. and how compelling does that have to be uh you know is it going to be more reliable is it i mean privacy is one aspect that people are really interested in so is it genuinely more private and more reliable uh enough to cancel out perhaps some performance challenges that are happening because this additional cost of computing that that you're going to get once you've shared out something that, that could be more efficiently done centrally. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And I also think it reminds us that centralization is not a technical phenomenon, but a social phenomenon. Yeah. The reason things centralize is because that's how our societies seem to work as well. I mean, there's um, if you look at it historically, social networks have never been exactly decentralized, but they have rather always had this, <clears throat> this quality that 20% uh, of the nodes have had 80% of the links for example exactly and so I do think that's uh, that's another part that it's important not to uh, forget so we talk about technology and centralization we need to under examine the underlying reasons that we see centralization and and very often they might not be anything to do with architectures or technologies but rather with our own behavior and as you pointed out the economy of the whole thing yeah. and that might be what's driving it so so that's that's one big uh, potentially overvalued trend that we've seen in the first six months for the year let's yeah. let's talk about the other one where signal to noise has been um, being quite uh, significant it, the Twitter acquisition yes. by Elon Musk 
So what should we make out of that? We had a we had an episode where we commented on it, and um, I think we both said that there's a lot there's a lot left to to say, and there's a lot left to learn about how that will evolve. What's your current take on it? Yeah, I mean, if we look at again, look at what the market's saying. It's saying it's not a done deal, isn't it? I mean, just, they've not they've they've uh, priced uncertainty continue to price uncertainty into the price of Twitter shares. That tells you people think it's not a done deal. There's there's this additional due diligence phase going on that's been talked about where Elon Musk challenged the number of fake accounts that are being reported by Twitter, and Twitter has given Elon Musk additional data in order to do the verification. As far as I'm aware, I don't think we've seen the outcome of that. So either you know, they're all going to settle everything and, and it'll be sweetness and light and they'll carry on, or somebody's going to come out and say i've looked at the data and and i do have serious concerns and the deal is off well the deal needs to be altered so i still think we're still sort of waiting uh, for that it's been an interesting negotiation in public i think the other phenomenon is watching elon musk learn about the challenges around moderating an online platform live in real time <laughs> Uh, by making assertions about, well, why didn't they just do X? And then having a whole bunch of people come back and go, this is why people have been working in this field for 10 or 15 years. Have, don't think you can just do X. It's actually more complicated, and, and here's the things that you need to do. So that, you know, whether it's well, largely around content issues, why not just follow the law on content issues? Well, mm. you know, whose law, which law, when, what's the legal test? All of these things are... Yeah, much much more complicated than they appear at first blush. And they've they've turned out to be an Alexander resistant Gordian knot. It's not yeah. that not that easy to cut. Exactly. And and I think it's interesting too to see how long this will actually go on because it it does it does sort of draw focus from the future work that Twitter seemed to set out to do at the beginning of the year. So yeah. what do you think? By the by, Christmas time when we discuss this, will the deal be done or off, or will it still be in...? It'll all be over by Christmas, like the First World War, yes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I, think, I don't think it can go much longer than that, because the uncertainty is... Desperate. And the investors, frankly, the investors want their money. <laughs> at some point, <laughs> you know, they, that becomes a legal so, issue. So yeah. it becomes a legal issue. Yeah. So I think it's got to be settled. I mean, you know, from the rest of the tech sector's point of view... I think it's actually quite... If I was still at, at Facebook, I'd be quite happy because, you know, it draws the attention. There's a, there's a limited amount of bandwidth that people have to worry about platforms. And, for example, you, you often used to feel when you were at Facebook that you were getting all the bandwidth and other people like Twitter weren't getting the same level of attention. And as long as the attention's on Twitter and everyone's debating Twitter, it actually lowers the temperature, I think, a little bit for other platforms uh, just because it, it sucks up so much uh, energy and attention. So, so as I say, I think from another platform point of view, it's like, keep going. <laughs> keep arguing about what Twitter should be like and leave us alone. Uh, but I think that's got to come to an end towards the end of the year. Having said that, if 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 it does go through and Elon Musk, you know, does become the new owner of Twitter, then Twitter will, I think, continue to be a major focus of attention now for months and years. Just the, in the same way that Tesla is. I mean, Musk is somebody who's outspoken. He'll constantly be asking questions, raising questions, talking about stuff that happens on the platform. So it does feel like if the deal goes through, Twitter's going to remain a, a much more prominent player in the policy debate than it was previously whereas I say I felt like it was often in the shadow of Facebook Instagram and then increasingly TikTok and some of the others mm, and that's really interesting so so I I also want to examine this kind of stuff that we think went under the radar that should mm. or we should have paid more attention to them things that were in some sense undervalued or yeah 
things that that happened quietly that will have a large impact going forward. Do you yeah. think there are any any things like that that we're missing? So I, I think I mean some of the bans that have taken place around the uh, invasion of Ukraine by Russia um, are really quite interesting. And they did they didn't. It was there was a little moment where it's like oh you know Russia's banning Instagram that's a big deal uh, and banning Facebook that's a kind of big deal. Um, but but it, I, I don't think there's a lot of attention being paid. I'm not seeing a lot of stories around, like, you know, how is that actually working out economically and socially? How's it working for people in Russia? How many are using VPNs going around? There's a little bit of chatter about that. But I think to the extent, you know, the understanding the impact of that is really quite important for this whole debate about Splinternet. And mm. in future, you, you know, will countries feel confident to cut off services, not just you know, countries like Russia, who who I think most of us feel have, have headed off in this horribly authoritarian direction. Um, but will other countries, will, will the UK, when it has its online safety bill in place and it has the power to cut services off, what assessment would it make of the impact of cutting off a service that's not playing with its regulatory regime? Mm. Uh, and I say, I've not really seen a lot of analysis of, of the actual impact of the Russia bans. And when I was there again a few years ago, the idea of Russia banning our major services would have been a big deal, but it kind of just happened. And you can see why. I mean, the conflict is what's important here. Uh, the fact that people are dying every day is what's important here. But it does strike me as interesting. It's just like, oh, they banned these big services. Move on. <laughs> mm. and, and it raises this question of future topologies of the internet that, mm. that we have been we've sort of touched on before. But but there <clears throat> there's a couple of different scenarios that are crystallizing. One is one is the sort of we have national islands of internet, and we're going back to the pre-internet days, really, uh, where where every nation has its own internet, and that's largely where business is done. And then there are a few connections that allow for export of ideas and services and products, but, but mostly we see a re-territorialization of the internet. Right? And the other is the division into two uh, equally large but very different geopolitical blocks, mm. where, you, where you have the call that uh, we recently saw from Russia to, to shape some non-Western alternative to the G7, yeah. etc. And you could imagine the topologies dividing along those lines as well. So you would have a, you would have kind of a a, a BRICS internet and a G7 internet, and, yeah. and you would have to figure out, you know, what will this mean if we live in a? It's the classical question of political theory of multipolar or bipolar um, political orders. Yeah. And which one do you think is more likely there? I well, so I I um, actually think it it's going to be about individual countries. I still think it's it's largely that there's there's a, a mainstream. NATO net, <laughs> yeah. Uh, the, but there's gonna, there is going to be, I think, a mainstream internet. Uh, the question is, how many countries decide that they are so keen to assert their sovereignty that they pull away from it? Um, I think if it, yeah, if it, you know, China has done for years. So China pulled away years ago. Russia's now followed. Yeah, it, it, to your BRICS example, if India and Brazil did, that would be massive. So I think those are probably the, the frontline states. I still think you know, Western Europe, United States. A lot of uh, U.S.-friendly countries in the Middle East and and South America will will be comfortable with the internet, the sort of core internet as we've always seen it. But if yeah, if an India or a Brazil peels away, 
then then you're now starting to have that sort of block like effect. And if you're building an internet service, you've you've got to build multiple variations, as opposed to now where you build for the main internet, and then you're sad that you can't have Chinese and Russian customers, but it's not the end of the world. If you can't have Chinese, Russian, Indian, or Brazilian customers, ooh, the equation starts shifting quite a lot. Yeah, and, you, and and of course, what we're talking about now are separate topologies, but you, you could also imagine a world in which they're layered, so mm. that there is a broad internet, but if you really want to make business, you have to go on this other topology, this other internet that is um, that is uh, recognized officially by the countries uh, for economic reasons, tax reasons, etc., etc. So you would end up with a tiered rather than a separated internet. So if we talk about splinternet, we could talk about sort of a cake internet where the layers intersect in different ways, and that would be that would be equally complex but would be harder to spot early yeah uh, because you i think there is there is certainly an argument for research here into two things one is how the internet traffic is actually uh, what it looks like today vis-a-vis -vis 10 years ago and the other is user behavior you know yeah. how much of user behavior is increasingly focused on the own market yeah and and i think there used to be a lot of research around the internet traffic, around the internet mm. uh, markets, etc. But I may be just missing it, but I, yeah. I haven't picked up a lot lately. I don't know if you have. No, I haven't. To say, it just it feels. It, uh, so if we talk about undervalued uh, themes. This is one that could come back to bite us. So by the time we get, and actually, particularly with all the regulation that's coming in, so twenty twenty three next year. You know, you start getting in this regulation kicking in in Europe and UK and places. You start, you continue to get these political arguments, these geopolitical arguments playing out. And so 2023 might be a crunch year. And we'll go, where did that come from? <laughs> you know, because now there are governments making decisions which are, you know, they're trying to uh, push a company in a particular direction uh, with the threat of limiting access. Um, and at that point, yeah, it's going to be really important to understand the power balance, like how important is that market to the company uh, versus how painful is it to do what the government is telling you to do. Um, those are going to be the equations that people have to play out. And I, I don't feel cited enough on it. And I said the Russia, studying the Russia example could be quite useful in itself to your point about user behavior. Did, did, did Russians, have Russian internet users switch to local alternatives or have they say VPN their way around the blocks? Mm. Uh, what, are the, what are the trends? And the trends could start one way but then shift quite dramatically in a different direction as we know as internet services have network effects. So, so I think yeah. keeping a really close eye on that I think is quite valuable. Um, yeah, I saw some early research that needs to be validated and mm. where sort of I, I need to be much more sure about the source that indicated that out of 10 top apps being downloaded in Russia, at least three to five were VPN apps. Yeah. If that is true, and yeah. it's a huge if, you need to validate this stuff, then, then that signals something about what is what is happening. Um, and mm. I think you could learn from and probably study earlier situations like uh, the Turkish ban or, for example, YouTube and other sites yeah. to sort of figure out what does this look like and, and what does VPN use to look like. And yeah. of course, what you then also need to look at is are VPNs being criminalized? Yeah. Um, are they being, because that's a very clear sign that they're used. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so yeah, you can like, use that as another signal to understand how that is changing yeah. the topology. And maybe coming back to the question about the decentralized web, one of the ambitions behind that, so we connect the, the dots here, it would of course be to reduce the ability to ban or control anything. And the question is how strong that prive is. It used to be, and I think this is so interesting, but it used to be teased out as one of the key motivations around mm. the internet that, uh, 
the internet was building this censorship uh, resistant infrastructure and it it would i think the the phrase was the internet treats censorship as damage and routes around it yeah and and there used to be in the early rhetoric around the technology there was this core motivation of building a system that could connect people even if states wanted to stop that connection and and what we've then seen since is this as you pointed out the centralization that flows from a number of different reasons and causes and i think one test of web3 whether or not it will come about or not is also a test of how strong that original motivation to escape control was is that was that a true motivation was that a rhetorical sort of thing that was attached to the early internet. If it's a true motivation, we should probably expect Web3 to continue to develop in different ways. Exactly. If it was more of a more of a flourish around this new technology, an epiphenomenon, if you will, then, then we probably shouldn't expect Web3 to develop as much, right? Yeah. So I think it's, so it's interesting. The people now come into the equation. So if, if, uh, if to date we've seen a lot of the the arguments around censorship and as as a struggle between companies and governments mm. about who has the power to set the rules of speech that's the companies have often asserted that they're doing it on behalf of their users but but it's it's not clear what what the what the company wants to do and what individuals actually want to do i think as censorship becomes real or as restrictions become real you suddenly get a much more powerful user voice and and that will be expressed in the technology choices they make, whether, as you say, they download a VPN or not, that's a clear expression of an individual to say, I disagree with the choice that my government has made. Mm. And there's a point at which it's such a significant uh, group of people doing it, it starts to become a real political force and, and a real uh, uh, additional power in the debate. So, again, I, yeah, interesting to see how that works out. You know, in China, to a large extent, people have become... They, they've, Learn to work around to some extent, but they they understand that you can't buck the system completely. You have to work with the system. So China, I think that's been settled for a while. But you take a population like the population of Russia who had access to all of these things, and then you shut it down. You may find that they are less, much less willing to be compliant and much more uh, open to taking a risk and, and work around. Yeah, such a good point. And you could predict, or you could say that we are possibly in for a really interesting discussion. What happens if the VPNs are incorporated in the operating systems? Yeah. And at that point, uh, if you're a Western politician, you have to look at this and say, is it is a good or a bad thing? Because it's going to be end-to-end -end encryption at the at the level of the operating system, yeah. which will allow for the internet and for information to flow freely between the people, as you say, not just companies or nations. But on the other hand, it will significantly lessen the amount of control that we can exercise democratically over these systems. So, so there's like a there's a really potentially very mm. interesting tension coming to the fore here as well, right? Yeah, yeah. So we might be just at the moment where the regulators getting control of things that the control is much harder to exercise. Now, I think we're going to see that anyway. We're already seeing it. There's this huge unresolved question around services like WhatsApp and Telegram, the encrypted messaging services. Yeah. And if you look at the legislation, the legislation sort of doesn't say you must decrypt them, but it creates a whole set of obligations that might be, you know, the answer from those services might be, we're doing our best, but there's very little we can do in this particular area because we have no sight into the content. Yeah. Um, so I'm looking at, at the moment uh, in a committee looking at issues to do with online fraud. And, you know, if you're uh, a Facebook or a Google or an Instagram and you're running ads and those ads drive 
fraudulent traffic to, to people who wish to defraud people, like it's obvious you can do something about that. So if you, if you have a duty now to stop fraud, you can stop those ads. But if you put the same duty on a Telegram or a WhatsApp and it's somebody privately sending a message that, that says, give me all your money, uh, and, and you as a platform have no visibility, like you can't do anything. You literally can't do anything about necessarily identifying and, and removing that content. That concept doesn't exist. So does the law say you've met your obligation to reduce online fraud if you're a uh, a platform like that, as long as you close the account of somebody once they've been reported to you, but you have you, you don't have to do any kind of scanning or screening because you can't. Do we say that's fine, or do we say no, no, no? Your obligation, you, you know, is similar to the obligation for the clear text platforms, and therefore you must now decrypt everything in order to meet your obligation. And that's punted off to another day. <laughs> it reminds me of an, uh, a book that came out in the late 90s about the internet and society by a guy called James Levin, in which he, he made this comparison. He said that the internet is tricky because it's part television, part telephone. Yeah. And, and figuring out how you regulate television and telephone is very, I mean, those are very different tasks or historically have been very different tasks. So when they're combined into a single medium, it becomes really yeah, tricky. Yeah. And I, I thought that was a useful shorthand to sort of understand some of these problems. So because if somebody defrauds me over the phone, we typically don't go after the telephone company for it uh, mm. if it's not on a sort of scale. Yeah. scale. But uh, if they, you know, if television advertising is fraudulent, it's very clearly that there's some kind of responsibility for the channel uh, hosting that advertising. So there's there's a lot of really uh, interesting questions between the television and the telephone that are still playing out, and it's yeah. it's quite fascinating. We should get back to this in an, uh, another episode. We yes. talked about Ethel the Solar Pool and the technologies of freedom. We should do a yeah. deep reading of that and so see if we can properly bore our listeners. Exactly. Yes, <laughs> Lots to dig into. Yes. So another question for you. One, one thing that happened over spring that hasn't gotten a lot of attention, as potentially somewhat undervalued or at least promising is this idea of a technology trade council between the European yeah. Union and the US that came up. It seems to be, I mean, we have reached all-time lows on transatlanticism, arguably, uh, in the last five years. We've we've never had such a weak transatlantic link, especially with uh, the data transfer uh, mm. agreements collapsing and the general sort of sentiment and atmosphere between Europe and the US. It's been brought with many different conflicts. Mm. Do you think that we might see a bit of pickup in transatlanticism yeah. over the coming five years? Could the Ukraine conflict factor into that? I think so. I mean, there's certainly a lot of people advocating for, uh, you know, much better alignment and, and engagement. And I think they're having some success. There are things happening, uh, not at the level they need to be happening. But I think you put your finger on it that I think with the, the sort of NATO refresh and the Ukraine conflict, there is more of an appetite to to not be having trade wars. Transatlantic trade wars are are kind of inconsistent with uh, transatlantic strong alliances in order to to protect Ukraine and to to engage in what is a real war uh, at, at a distance, not directly. Of course, NATO is not not directly involved, but that that support for Ukraine, I think, does become undermined if if the countries that are part of that partnership are you know, conflicting with each other over some quite fundamentals, like how do technology services interact with each other, what are the standards that you apply. So I do I do think the atmosphere right now is more conducive to that. I guess on the flip side, though, a lot of the the energy 
of governments on either side of the Atlantic is necessarily devoted to military cooperation right now. And it may mm. be just literally harder to find the people uh, in government who have the time uh, to dedicate to looking at nerdy details of privacy regulation and things like that. On the other hand, I found it a really promising sign that even though that was the case, in May they managed to announce this yeah. Technology Trade Council as a mechanism for how to think about different technology policy issues. And I, I, I mean, I, it, almost as if I would like to uh, just make a small plug for thinking more about that space, yeah. because I think the more we can get back to a transatlantic mechanism, if mm. nothing else, for talking about this, the better it would be. I'm not saying that one side or the other should yield, but I do think that there is a value in having that mechanism for dialogue that, that I think broke down a couple of years, which is which, which I think was damaging to both sides exactly. in many ways. Exactly. So we're short on crypto. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we're short on Tesla. Yeah. Uh, sorry, not on Tesla. Twitter. Uh, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Not. I like Twitter. Um, but yeah. and but we're long on splinternets. Yeah. And we're long on trade. That's yeah, yeah. Sort of where we we net out so. when we look back at the first six months. Yeah. I th I I think that's. I, I like that. I think yeah. that's a pretty accurate representation. I'm sure that we missed some massive things, but we'll let our listeners tell us. Yes. Yes. So we should transition to this is this is our summer episode yes. podcast, and the summers are for reading. That's as I pointed out earlier, a legal requirement. So, <laughs> we, what are you reading this summer? What's so, your? So I've got uh, three books uh, that. Are kind of quite different from each other. So, so the first is, um, uh, if people don't know, I started life as an archaeologist, and I'm still quite obsessed with archaeological things. And there's a, a book by a woman called Kat Jarman, uh, who's a, uh, a bioarchaeologist who specialised in, uh, I think, um, uh, uh, sort of organic remains. Uh, but she's done a review. The book's called River Kings, The Vikings from Scandinavia to the Silk Roads. Oh, my people. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it looks, I mean, what's interesting is I find I like books that um, uh, sort of s frame the world in a different way from the way in which you're used to it. And this one I actually read before the Ukraine conflict started, but a lot of it's around the Dnieper River and ah. those trade routes that, that crossed uh, um, the continent and, and sort of particularly riverine routes, routes that run through sea and river with the way in which you move stuff. Um, and there were these routes that sort of went right across uh, Asia uh, and the connections out to India, the Far East, uh, that sort of run up through those rivers and then end up in Northern Europe. And it starts by some finds that there were in the United Kingdom. Uh, and how did those objects get there? Where did they come from? And you kind of trace them through all these kingdoms uh, that existed in that in the area that is now much of it is ukraine uh central eastern europe uh, and part of russia uh, and so she has just wonderful stories and sort of really brings it to life one of my favorite stories is is uh or references that the and i'm going to mangle the name but the hryvnia the coin that is used in ukraine the currency the official currency of ukraine uh, that word is derived from neck ring from the time when your wealth was contained in ah. talks in in uh, precious metal neck rings and and so they're using the name of a currency that kind of has got like a thousand years of, of history behind it which i really enjoyed that sounds lovely it sounds yeah. like it's not something you like i would like to read as well so that's a very good tip yeah. um i guess uh, let's trade tips so so i think that the book that i will recommend mm. first is is uh, predictably one about artificial intelligence <laughs> but not about the technology so much as one of the fundamental issues in the field which is the alignment problem and it's by an author called brian christian and he has gone through uh, this notion of the alignment problem which is how do we build systems that are aligned with the values that we would like to keep as a civilization or society and and the way he does it is really good. It, there's um, there's a 
very, very light focus on the technology. But what he seeks to do is to understand how we align values as human beings, what it is that drives us. And in many ways, this is sort of reminds me of a general trend in artificial intelligence, which is that it, it sort of holds up a mirror to us and asks really important questions about human intelligence, mm. about how we learn, how we think, how we create values. And, and that's what I really like about it. Plus, it's super well researched and has a lot of interesting insights. Like there, there's a small tidbit I'll mention that I thought was really interesting, and that is that there is this uh, distinction between uh, rewarding a system for doing the right thing and then teaching it to do it, and the system then becomes really good at it, and so reward seems to work really well. And so you can think, okay, we're all then in B.F. Skinner's world where we're rewarded for what we do, or the Pavlov world, you know, where mm. we do whatever. When the when the bell rings, we start salivating, and and that's. But then it turns out that there is another model that's equally powerful, and that is one that, where we search for novelty and mm. search find new things and search for novelty is actually also a very successful strategy for a certain class of problems and so i thought that was so interesting because there is if you think about this mirror it sort of gives yeah. you these different models of man really which is goes back to herbert simon who always was interested in technology not from the point of technology but from the point of man from the point of what we can do as human beings yeah. and and uh, I like that in Christian's book it's a really really good book I mean, it reminds me there was a book I read sometime ago The Neophiliacs a neophile as to, to your point about looking for novelty that with this love of new things which is yeah. quite curious we don't get to a point where we kind of go Right, it, I've, seen, done I've now. seen the things. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm done now. <laughs> yeah. I, I've got 20 foods that I like eating. I'm not going to bother trying anything else. Exactly. <laughs> no. I'm uh, done with novelty. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, we, I think we associate that state with no, not only stagnation, but ultimately uh, death. Because you know that's what happens when you stop being curious. Even if it's not bodily death, there's some kind of intellectual end station yeah. that you reach. And it's one of the saddest things, really, when you, uh, you know, fictionally or wherever, when, when somebody loses their curiosity. That's a fundamental crippling of the human spirit. Yeah. Well, Sorry. Um, that's, me, a, that's a depressing. Yeah, let's, let's, let's continue let's, to be curious about your book. Yeah, so yes. let's go to something cheerful. So this is the, a book uh, called Exponential by Azim Azhar. Uh, and the subtitle is How Accelerating Technology is Leaving Us Behind and What to Do About It. But I, I found this really interesting. So he, he, he goes through you know how computing power has sort of increased exponentially and so on but also takes us then interestingly into other forms of technology like manufacturing and energy and food production and all of these other spheres and and it just you know, so a little bit of a journey i'm on is is sort of moving away from uh, uh thinking of the technology that only exists as bits and bytes without within computers which mm. is you know social media only exists as bits and bytes within computers search most of the tools that i've been working on for years are are uh software creations as it were now that i mean enabled by that technology by the internet by artificial intelligence by all these amazing techniques you're able then to do really interesting stuff in what we call the real world the physical world so you're able to transform transport you're able to transform uh, what we eat how we live all sorts of things and that makes me really cheerful because <laughs> it makes me cheerful. I'm a neophile, but it also it does make me cheerful to think, you know, uh, it's not done, but there are solutions, there are potential solutions uh, um, 
so that we're not going to end up just burning up all the resources on the planet. And so you look at something like manufacturing would be a classic example. It's not, you know, manufacturing incredibly wasteful. You ship all these raw materials to China, you build stuff, you ship it back over here. It's, it's this sort of horribly wasteful process. You take a big object of stuff and then you, you kind of extract uh, a product from it. There's these new forms of manufacturing where it's additive, where it's local, it's small scale, it's, it's uh, uh, modular that can just be much, much more efficient. So you still have stuff. We like stuff. We like new stuff because we like we're neophiles. Stuff. Yes. But you can, you can have new stuff at a much lower planetary cost. Right. Um, so things like that that, uh, that sort of this book leads me to think about and think, well, yeah, it's there. I mean, again, so some people say the risk is you end up saying, so don't, you don't need to do anything about climate change because tech will solve it. Oh, I, it's I, not as easy I, I as that. Think that I, 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 there are two books that, that comes to mind when you say that, that mm. I think are interesting uh, corollaries to that. And one mm. of them is Andrew McAfee's More From Less, uh, yeah. which he actually goes through how much we need to produce stuff yeah. and how much, um, how much of a cost we create for the environment and the economy overall. And he, he shows that in some classes of cases, we're actually producing uh, more, but for less yeah. in yeah. terms of energy and raw materials. Materials, etc., etc., and and to that though you can add, which will be my next thing on the list that I'm going to read this summer, uh, the the famous or infamous Vaslav Smil's book, The Grand Transition. Smil ah. is is one of those folks who who I uh, he's, he's Bill Gates' favorite author, yeah. which is, which makes sense in so many ways because the level of attention to detail, the erudite sighting <laughs> of how many jewels is spent by a cow, you know, yeah. he has he has everything down pat. And he writes in this book about exactly that, about the great agricultural transitions of the past and how hard they were and what happened, etc. And so it's a, it's almost like you could read it as a preface to, to the SR book. Yeah. So I, I strongly recommend that. And when, and when you're reading that on Kindle, occasionally do you just get like a, a blue screen and nothing happens? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the blue page of death. <laughs> the blue page it's of death. Bill Gates' favorite, yeah. It's, it's Kindle on, on Apple, so just Steve Jobs' spirit still <laughs> guards me. But, but, I, but I, I found it really interesting. Yeah. And Smeal has several, he has written a, a plethora of really interesting books, but they're but you have to sort of lighten it up with some detective novel fiction yeah. because it's really heavy stuff. But it's right. quite Sounds good. fascinating. So. Grand Transitions. Grand Transitions. We'll right. put this in the show notes. Yes. Um, and so my, my last one, I like my biographies. Oh, I think yeah. I have got older. I like to more and more. Do you think that's a phenomenon? I heard somebody else say the same thing, that they read more biographies as they grow older. I, I'm more interested in other people's lives. I sort of reflect on my own, and, I, and I'm oh, more curious about other people's lives. I think it is that sort of reflection. I like too. Yeah. Um, and I've got one uh, here, which is The Young H.G. Wells by mm. Claire Tomlin. Claire Tomlin, I really enjoy. She's a great biographer, and, uh, particularly for sort of British characters. She's done a lot of them. Uh, and the young H.G. Wells is looking at him as he was growing up at the beginning of the tw end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century, and wrote most of his most interesting books. Um, and I found it fascinating for a couple of reasons. One, again, if we talk about the transitions and the change, as H.G. Wells was imagining a world in much of his science fiction, a lot of which has actually come to pass. Mm, yeah. um, so he's imagining this world, but he's living in a world where the great liberation is he gets a bicycle. And with his bicycle, he can now go to places 20 miles away uh, from where he lived. And I, I just hadn't really twigged that these people sort of feel very modern to me, 
but for them, a liberating force was a bicycle. That was the that was the most advanced, fastest means of transport if you lived in rural England. Of course, yeah. there was a train network, but that didn't go to most places. Uh, so you were there, and this bicycle gives him the freedom uh, to go off and sort of expand his life. I thought, wow. And it also got me to go and read uh, Time Machine, which is one of his classics. And oh, I, right. I hadn't yeah. realised, again, I, I'm trying to think if I actually read it before, but my perception of it was completely different from the reality. The reality being it's a deeply political novel. Mm, yes. uh, and and it's, it's a sort of allegory for the way in which you know politics may end up creating a, a different classes of people rulers and ruled yeah. uh, and again fascinating to revisit now as a fascinating sort of allegory for our times where we're talking about a lot about you know you've got the super wealthy the one percenters however you want to call them uh and their and their relationship with other people inequality is increasing that we're dividing society and anyway, you go back to the hg wells there's something in there that he's seeing uh, that is well worth revisiting. So. Yeah, it's a, it's a cruel dystopia in many ways, and and super well worth reading. I agree yeah, with you, and yeah. and especially I think that's actually a really good point. Try to find more fiction and more literature about inequality to understand the problem for other angles. It's it's one of those problems that really require a multimodal understanding. You need to sort of section it up and 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 and, and try to approach it yeah. in different dimensions. I think that's right. So my last yeah. one, um, my last recommendation is. <laughs> is a book by Jessica Silby and it's called Against Progress Intellectual Property and Fundamental Values in the Internet Age Ooh. and it the, this is exciting for many reasons yeah, yeah. for me one is that it's actually uh, quite recent it came out in June and it resurrects a debate that I thought was essentially dead the debate around what does a good regime for intellectual property rights look like mm. in the internet age. And um, if anything, um, I think the intellectual property discussion, the copyright discussion, the part, we've discussed this in mm. an earlier episode, uh, I thought that was a sort of a closed chapter of tech policy. But this book makes me think that maybe I was wrong. Mm. And maybe there is more to come in terms of how intellectual property works and how intellectual property affects the overall evolution of the information society or the learning society and mm. so so I am very much looking forward to reading this and I'll report back on it and I really like the juxtaposition between property and fundamental values because yeah. it's it's one of the eternal human problems how do we deal with with property and fundamental values in one sense property is a fundamental value in another it actually makes it really difficult to exercise uh, fundamental values so yeah. so I'm looking forward to that a lot I have high hopes for that book and I am certainly going to report like back you on one it. of your favorite subjects is back on the agenda yes it, it does trigger a thought here when you knew it is that um if artificial intelligence creates something that is deemed to be their elect intellectual property and the given that intellectual property rights typically have these things like expire so many years after your death and an ai never dies <laughs> does that mm. you know, are we are we heading into a world of eternal intellectual property rights that's, that's a really happen. good question and and there is a, there's a couple of i mean we can expand on yeah, this yeah. <laughs> and, and let me tell you there's actually a real problem here because you can uh, automate the creation of pastiches quite easily mm. so one example i had when i lectured many years ago um, was that there's there is this um, this really uh, interesting computer scientist that has programmed a system that can essentially uh, write 
Bach pieces mm. um, uh, on the basis of the existing body of Bach pieces yeah. it creates a variation on them yeah. and I, I usually the way I did this in the lecture was that I would play the piece and I would ask the audience to guess the classical composer yeah. uh, them not knowing then that this mm. was actually a, a computer generated piece of art and and um, I did this for many audiences and most of them who knew their classical music would would guess Bach Handel something mm. from the Baroque period uh, but once I did it for um, a college of musicologists and uh, they had enormous problems guessing what it was and then um, when some of them at least you know they said oh probably Bach and yeah. I told them it was computer generated they they breathed this collective sigh of relief and said, oh, God, it's so, so bad. We were worried it was bad. <laughs> <laughs> so they heard something I obviously didn't hear yeah, yeah. in this particular piece of music. And it raises the question of, if you go into um, intellectual property rights, it raises the question of, is this work original enough to actually deserve protection? Yeah. Because if it's a variation on an existing theme, you could argue that the, the originality is not there. It's derivative. Yeah. And if it's derivative, then you don't end up with that problem. And then you exactly. end up with a more general question, which is, is all computer-generated or derivative? Well, ah, not necessarily, yeah. right? So how do you think about that? Yeah. And, and I think that as you sort of approach these different questions, you realize that that generativity was not something that was built into the original intellectual property rights regime. The fact that you could build a tool that itself could build art was of course recognized because we knew about you know mm. we knew about how people paint with tools we knew about musical instruments we just never thought that the tools would become so expressive as to be able to generate structure at the scale we see today so there's a huge debate to be had here and there's a huge question about creativity that will irk some people because they want creativity to be that last human frontier where we can say well at least machines can't be creative yeah. and there are people like my dear friend Paul Dahlstedt, who have done a lot of research into this, uh, he's, a, he's a professor of um, of composition and musicology, and has looked at this. and And I think he he probably would be a really interesting guest for us to bring yeah. on at some point. There's a whole episode there. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yes, intellectual property in the age of AI. Yes, or no, this art. Art, art in the, in the age. age of, of, yes, yeah. yeah. And then the question. And then intellectual property and then intellectual follows becomes, art. Uh, yes, exactly. Yeah. So yeah. there's a lot left to do, and you can expect to hear more from us. You can find this podcast on your website, which is www.regulate.tech. And thank you so much for listening. Uh, we are now. Now, uh, concluding this podcast directly from the boat. Yeah. Thank you for listening and uh, take care. Bye.